Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, look back at the battle for Bakhmut, and we interview Dr Jade McGlynn, a fellow in the War Studies Department at King's College London, about her new book, Russia's War. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 26th of May, one year and 91 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, foreign journalist, Verity Bowman, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Busy, busy 24 hours. Lots to get through here. I'll, um, I'll be quick. So another wave of airstrikes last night across Ukraine. At least one person killed and 15 injured on a Russian missile strike on a medical clinic in Dnipro. But aside from that, there were, um, well, Ukraine say they shot down 10 missiles on over more than 20 drones across the country, mainly the cities of Kiev, Kharkiv and Dnipro, but also regions in the east as well. Um, Ukrainian Air Force said it had shot down 10 missiles that came in from the Caspian Sea and 23 of the Iranian-made Shahid drones, as well as two reconnaissance drones. I think they're the Orland 10, the reconnaissance drones. But the Air Force said in total it had 17 missiles and 31 drones were launched between kind of 10 o'clock last night, 5 a.m. today, uh, Ukraine time. Sergei Lesak, who's the regional governor of Dnipro, said it was a very difficult night. It was loud. The enemy launched a mass attack on the region with missiles and drones. Dnipro has suffered. You'll see images on our website of the medical centre in Dnipro that's well, it's just been utterly destroyed. And uh, yeah, expect, uh, expect the casualty toll to go up there. Elsewhere, so inside Russia now, Russian officials say that Ukraine have hit two regions in southern Russia with rocket and drone strikes. They claim some missiles were shot down. So we're in the city of Krasnodar here. So we're about 
150 kilometres due east of the Kirsch Bridge. There's uh, various buildings damaged there. Local officials say they don't they don't say what caused the blast, but Russian media have reported that was a, a drone attack. And unverified footage from social media showed a drone flying over the city. So the mayor of Krasnodar, Yevgeny Naumov, said on Telegram, all emergency services are working at the scene. The cause of the incident is being investigated. Residents asked to stay calm. Then in neighbouring Rostov region, so a bit, bit further north, the local governor claimed a Ukrainian missile had been shot down by air defences. Now, there is a Russian air base near there. So this is Vasily Golubev, who's the, the local governor. He said that in the area of Morozovsk, so we are now 100 k's due, well, east of the border, 100 k's over the border, so almost 200 kilometres exactly east from Bakhmut. So Golubev said an air defence system went off shooting down a Ukrainian missile. There is footage. You'll be able to find it on social media. I mean, it's big. When you hit a missile, it normally explodes and obviously obviously comes down out of the sky. But but image if it's if it happens at night, you don't don't see much more than the flash of when it's hit. Whatever is hit in this incident continues to burn on its way down to the ground. There are some suggestions unverified that it was an aircraft, possibly a Russian aircraft that had been hit by its own side, but they're completely unverified at the moment. But something was, was hit near the airbase of Morozovsk. And uh, Golibev went on, the military is doing its job, stay calm, in his finest Frank-driven voice, no doubt. Now, elsewhere, other bits and pieces to bring you up to date. South Korea has said it's going to transfer hundreds of thousands of artillery rounds to Ukraine under a confidential arrangement. This is coming out of the Wall Street Journal. This is just, as you know, so the idea is now how to move to a more sustained industrial, military industrial footing to support Ukraine through the fight now and then whatever comes next. So these, these deals that, that continue to happen around the world are all part of that effort. And with that in mind, today the Swedish defence minister said that they will, quote, try to accommodate training Ukrainian pilots on Gripen fighter jets, the Swedish Gripen. If Ukraine makes a request, this all adds to the momentum around uh, uh, jets for Ukraine. However, Per Johnson, he said, the defence minister said that Sweden is not going to supply the planes themselves. He said, we exclude nothing when it comes to supporting Ukraine, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. However, at this stage, we will not be able to support the Ukrainian armed forces with Swedish Gripen fighters. Very capable fighter, but also is specially designed for running out of out of dirt strips and, and roads and motorways. That was the Swedish model to sort of get away from the air bases that are we've seen are particularly vulnerable and operate things these things out of out of civilian infrastructure. So that would be very interesting to see if that went to uh, if they were sent to Ukraine. And then just um, just finally on this bit, let's have a look at the Black Sea. So a couple of things happened there in the recent days that we need to talk about. A couple of days ago, so this is analysis from a, a civilian company called Geolect. They have said, they, they show that for the last couple of weeks, commercial shipping vessels, AIS, that's the automatic identification system, a bit like a transponder for an aircraft, but the ship signals. So when you look at these ship tracking sites or you see imagery of them on news reports, they're, they're, it's the AIS that says where the ship is. Obviously, it's for safety purposes. But they, um, this company is saying that, that for the last couple of weeks, Someone's been messing around with AIS data, remotely spoofing it to create the impression of a 65-kilometre-long Russian pro-war Z symbol on the Black Sea. So you'll see this on open-source tracking software on any kind of vessel tracker and what have you. And as I say, AIS used to track vessels to ensure safety. 
but the tracks making up this shape uh, suggest the vessels are moving at over 100 knots you know it's like you know over 100 miles an hour which kind of gives the light light to them and uh, and they're very neat so it suggests that it's yeah pro russian actors so yeah great ho 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 so far so amusing but of course there is there's obviously a risk if you're spoofing ais could lead to maritime incidents that's not good but i'd just say and the second point about the black the black sea here you know that's fine spoofing all good fun blah 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 draw it in the sky whatever you're going to do but you know if you if if you can't talk the talk, don't walk the walk. Now, the, there are still big questions to be answered over the Russian research vessel, and I'm doing bunny ears around the word research there, the Ivan Kurs that apparently was, was hit the other day with some maritime drones. You might see some, well, there is newly released social media footage which suggests it was taken from on board one of these maritime drones that we see heading towards the ship which is purportedly the Ivan Kurs there's no reason to suggest it's not that's certainly what it looks like according to other readily available data and the um, and the thing that we are following we the viewer are following definitely connects with the um, with the ship port side towards the after of the ship there are suggestions that oh this is done for the ship we don't know we absolutely do not know there are reports today that the Ivan Kurs has pulled into Sevastopol, but, you know, unverified. But certainly it stands counter to the Russian official narrative that, that the Ivan Kurs was attacked with drones and nothing got through. They were all shot. The imagery that we can see, certainly there are rounds landing in the water as this thing moves towards the vessel, but none of them impact and the, and, the, and it gets through. So I spoke to um, a good friend of ours, a good friend of the pod, has been on before, Tom Sharp. Thanks, Tom. About, about the level of preparedness. I was asking about how... In an active war zone, i.e. the Black Sea, and yes, this is a research vessel, but um, it's a flagged Russian military vessel. So, you know, should they have been more prepared? And Tom was saying, well, you know, if it was the Royal Navy or, or any other sort of professional navy, things would have been very different. Firstly, in the sea state, which is pretty calm, the vessel should have been should have been ramped up to sort of 30 knots, something like that. Small boats can be outrun in any kind of, especially if the sea state is less conducive to the smaller vessels and it establishes intent if you increase your speed and the thing starts coming for you then it really does suggest that they are they have malign intent so rule one tom says speed and maneuver rule two weight of fire you know we see a couple of rounds coming in to try and hit this thing but nothing else and the weapons aren't readied as it gets closer to the vessel we can see that there are there's hardly anyone on board looking at the thing weapons aren't aren't being ready that kind of thing there would have been a hail of tracer had it been a a Royal Navy Navy ship. And the fact that a couple of rounds land suggests that suggests they won't fire, or they're not particularly well aimed, particularly ineffective. And of course, this comes what a year ago, April last year was it? The Mosfar was sunk. So you know, not not great drills there. Whatever happened, and um, you know, I treat it with I'd be very very skeptical of the reports that the Ivan Kurz has been sunk. You know, treat that with a real uh, degree of skepticism. But I think this footage does look accurate, in which case the drills on board, like I say, an active, in an active war zone, an active a Russian naval ship, are not good. Uh, and I'll take a breath there. Thanks very much, Dom. Francis, can I come to you for some diplomatic and political updates? Maybe can we start with more reaction to this strike in Dnipro? Thanks, David. Yes, unsurprisingly furious reaction from Ukraine in response to that attack. President Zelensky has tweeted within the past hour or so, Another Russian missile attack, another crime against humanity. The buildings of a psychological clinic and veterinary clinic in the city were destroyed. As of now, one person was killed and 15 wounded. 
The shelling aftermath is being eliminated and the victims are being rescued. All necessary services are involved. Only an evil state can fight against clinics. There can be no military purpose in this. It is pure Russian terror. Russia has chosen the path of evil of its own will, and it will not abandon this path by itself. We must defeat terror, and we will do it. Ukraine and the entire free world, together. Thank you to everyone in the world who helps us. And I think incidents like this continue to make it very easy for countries around the world to increase their support to Ukraine. Don mentioned South Korea and Sweden a moment ago. And in the past 24 hours, the Canadian government has made an interesting announcement about their support, which seems an opportune moment, really, to provide an update on their donations and evolving stance on this war. I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners for which we're very grateful. And so when there are some updates on this, I'm very keen to do so. So the Minister of National Defence has announced that Canada is expanding its presence in Poland with five additional Canadian Armed Forces medical trainers to join the seven members already deployed there on advanced medical skills training for Armed Forces of Ukraine personnel. These additional members, they're saying, will double the number of potential Ukrainian graduates from that scheme. They've also said that the the Canadian Armed Forces have trained more than 36,000 members of security forces of Ukraine in battlefield tactics and advanced military skills whilst working alongside the Latvian National Armed Forces. They've said that since the full-scale invasion, 2,400 more have been trained. So again, not insignificant at all in terms of the numbers. Canada has also announced in the last 24 hours that it will donate 43 AIM-9 missiles to Ukraine and has noted that this donation will help Ukraine to secure its skies in the face of ongoing Russian attacks, like, of course, the ones we've just described this morning. Now, the minister's also noted that the delivery of the donation packages of small arms and ammunition announced back in April, which we did talk about then, is on track. So machine guns, assault rifles, cleaning kits, magazines, have already been delivered to Ukraine and 1 million rounds of ammunition and 4,800 assault rifles are scheduled to be delivered. They're saying that all 21,000 small arms and 2.4 million rounds of ammunition are expected to be in Ukraine by the end of summer. Really high numbers. In a quote that just, I think, underlines the Canadian strength of feeling here, Canada's support for Ukraine is unwavering. When I travel across Canada, I see Ukrainian flags on homes, small businesses and cars. Because Canadians understand that Ukraine's fight to defend itself is also a fight for sovereignty, freedom and independence. At today's meeting, we discussed Ukraine's most pressing defence priorities and I reaffirmed that Canada will be there to support Ukraine in the short and long term. So very strong words from the Defence Minister in Canada. And I think it is worth remembering that since the beginning of 2022, Canada has committed over $8 billion in aid to Ukraine, including over a billion in direct military assistance. That includes Leopard tanks and one armoured recovery vehicle, surface-to-air missile systems, uh, 39 armoured combat support vehicles, and then all of the weapons I've just described, drone cameras, winter clothing, a lot. 
And so Canada really playing a very significant role here, which is why it's great to be able to update listeners on, on what they have done and continue to do. Just some other countries as well providing support today. Finland has said it will send additional military support to Ukraine, including some anti-aircraft weaponry and ammunition at an overall cost of £94.6 million pounds or €109 million. Euros. Japan have also said that they will impose additional sanctions on Russia following the meeting of the G7 in Hiroshima last week which they said have shown the nation's resolve to support Ukraine. It said it will freeze the assets of 78 groups and 17 individuals in Russia and ban the exports to 80 Russian entities such as military-affiliated research labs. And I think all of this underlines really the value of these kind of summits. It's not just the leaders who meet each other, but they're officials who can then exchange information with their counterparts in other countries and more easily coordinate actions such as sanctions. So I think all of these announcements we're seeing are almost certainly in some way correlated to the G7 and the discussions that would have taken place there. But one final segment that I just wanted to touch on here in this section. So Ukraine have made a very interesting announcement, which is it said it plans to open more embassies in Africa and stage a summit with leaders from the continent. So Mr. Kuleba, the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister, has said that we've recently adopted our first African strategy and have intensified our political dialogue with many countries on the continent. This year, we're going to establish new embassies and plan to hold the first Ukraine-Africa summit. I invite the leaders of your countries to take part in this important event. We want to develop a new quality of partnership based on three mutual principles, respect, interests and benefits. Now, what's important here, I think, is to contextualise this. Both Russia and Ukraine are seen to be conducting a diplomatic push on the continent, where Mr. Kuleba is currently on tour. He made an appeal to Ethiopia on Wednesday and to other African friends to end their declared neutrality in the war. He's due to visit Rwanda, I think, today, or he may have arrived last night, I think. So it's a really fascinating story. And we've spoken a lot recently about how Russia and China have operated in Africa, and that has paid dividends in the support that they've received from many African countries in terms of their respective agendas, not least in terms of being neutral on the war in Ukraine. Now, evidently, Ukraine is trying to take part in the West's broader initiative to use mutual benefits as opposed to ideology to win those African countries back round. Now, some listeners might be asking what exactly Ukraine can offer these countries. And the answer is quite a lot, actually. One of the reasons I bang on about the grain deal so much is that it matters enormously to Africa. Ukrainian produce is vital for the continent. So what happens in Ukraine and what it's able to export has big impacts on their economies and the ability for them to feed their own people, particularly in some of the famine contexts, which I've talked about in the past. Ukraine clearly wants to leverage that. And so I think all of this is another story that we need to follow very, very closely and which I don't quite get the sense the world is following yet. But Ukraine making moves in the Middle East and in Africa, very significant and very interesting. 
Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your updates there. Can I turn to Roland and Verity? Roland and Verity, you've together written a, a, a really in-depth and interesting piece on the the battle for Bakhmut, which, of course, we've been covering over many, many months here on the podcast. Um, for those of you who do want to read this on the website, the headline is The Story of the Battle for Bakhmut Through the Eyes of Those Who Fought It. Roland, can I start with you? H- how do you tell the story of of this an enormous and incredibly important battle? Where, where did you start your story? We began at the beginning when we were asked to, to set this and, and, and lay this out. Um, and actually, the, the, story of the, the story of the story says something about the battle. So we were first commissioned to do this back in March, um, basically because editors were thinking, this place is going to fall at any moment and we need to be ready for when it does. And it didn't fall and it was parked until just the other week when finally Yevgeny Prigozhin and Vladimir Putin uh, and it proclaimed victory in Bakhmut two months later. I'd almost forgotten that we'd written this, so we, we quickly updated it. We went back to some of the people that we'd spoken to during du- during the first effort to to write it. And essentially, the story is um, it's meant to give the reader a sense of the course of the battle, why it was fought, where it was fought, what what happened at each stage. So you've got a view of the shape of the battlefield, but also talking to people who were in the thick of it. So soldiers, medics, the woman who runs through the piece, a woman called Yana, who um, Verity will talk about briefly, that after me is, was a civilian from Bakhmut who, who was living there for some part of the battle. So that, that's basically what we, what we attempted to do. I must say, I think it ran to about 3,000 words in the end, which is a huge amount of text for a newspaper. But, but to be honest, for a, for a nine and a half month battle, it barely scratches the surface. Well, let's go quickly to Verity then. Verity, you've been, you were speaking to lots of the people on the ground in Bakhmut. Could you talk a little bit about who you spoke to and their stories? Yes, of course. So as Roland said, we began working on retelling the Battle of Bakhmut months ago. And my main focus was interviewing the people who lived through it. So the locals, the medics and the soldiers fighting there. And the story really began for me with my interview with local Yana, who Roland just mentioned. She'd experienced fighting since 2014, but said this time around she experienced far more intense fear about what was coming. During our interview, she described her elderly parents alone and her husband running to save them while she waited at home, not knowing if any of them would make it back alive. She then stayed in Bakhmut for as long as she could, even when her friends and neighbours were fleeing, something that she looks back on with difficulty because she almost feels foolish for hanging on for so long. She finally made it out with her young son and husband, but obviously remains deeply traumatised about what she experienced and worries constantly that she will never be able to return home. I also spoke to a medic who, again, described constant worry. She'd been on the front line doing whatever she could to help injured soldiers for months, and she recalled zipping up body bags as other injured soldiers asked where their brothers were. And she would often see phones with pictures of children on their lock screens, she thought a lot about how those children had likely lost their father that day. Another memory that struck out to her was the frantic escape of locals and how they grabbed toys, mugs and pictures, forgetting documents and expensive items. She said that people were trying to gather their most precious moments before leaving to nowhere and that it really changed her view on what was important in the world. The soldiers who were fighting in the area were very wary when I spoke to them. One, named Nazar, said that there were no heroic actions or tales of glory anymore that often dominated a lot of the news coverage in the beginning. And another soldier, named Andre, told me, The soldiers come to us without experience of war. Good fathers, good men who work in normal jobs. 
and they don't want to kill, to die, but must for our freedom. I think what shows the true horror of Batmute for those living through it is some of the final things that Yana said when I interviewed her. She said she dreamed of a normal life, things like dinner at her parents' house with her sister and children, but this will never happen because that home is rubble now. She ended the interview by saying, I feel as though the Russians are not going to let us go. Bakhmut will be at their mercy. Thank you very much, Verity. Roland, uh, can I come back to you? When, when you tell the story of this battle, what are, the, what are the big moments that stand out, the big strategic shifts, the, 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 the points at which the narrative seems to, to move on or change? I'm just going to have to tell the story in that case because I can't. <laughs> There's so many of them. I mean, basically, the Battle of Bakhmut began um, on August the 1st, officially. That's when the Russians say it's undertaking. They, they start moving their troops, start doing a bigger infantry attack towards the edge of the city. But to put it in context, this is the kind of last battle of the great Russian Donbass offensive that began in the spring of 2022. So remember, they pulled back from Kiev. They said but they recognized they weren't going to take Kiev. And they said, no, we're going to capture Donbass now. And there was an enormous offensive effort. And the idea was basically to encircle most of the Ukrainian troops in in Donetsk region and centered on that stronghold of Slavyansk Kramatorsk. So there were three prongs to this. And the Russians, they want to come down through Izum to the north, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk to the kind of east, northeast, and then to the kind of southeastern kind of access of this. That would be Bakhmut. If you had all three of those, then basically Slavyansk is surrounded on three sides and you're poised to execute a, a strategic encirclement. So the Russians managed to take Izum in April and got pretty close to Slavyansk from the north and they captured Liman. In early July, they managed to capture Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. But the last piece of, the, of, of, the, of this jigsaw is, is Bakhmut. And they only really get to launch the assault on that in August, by which time they're, they're pretty exhausted. But nonetheless, that's what they're going to do. It's the logical place to start. The assault begins and then... After about a month, September, you have the big, the big counteroffensive in Kharkiv, which is not, not around Bakhmut. It's much further north where the action's happening. But then the Russians lose Izum. So the, suddenly, the, you know, Bakhmut itself is no longer really a crucial strategic objective. And yet the Russians keep on going. So, so Wagner, always at the forefront of this, pushing, pushing, pushing. By the end of July, they're, not, they're, they're on the eastern edge of the city they're not making it any further then they try to go around the side so the battlefront slowly expands and then by kind of octoberish time you've got a battlefront kind of 16 miles across this is eight miles to the north eight miles to the south of the city itself as the russians try to go around the side and it stays like that for several months until until the end of december and that's really when the russians start to make their breakthroughs so the very end of December, they begin their assault on Solidar, which is a satellite town to the northeast of Bakhmut. And after several weeks of very, very bloody fighting, that's successful. Then they have another breakthrough to the south, which comes, which, which sends us a prong, if you want, up the south, on, on behind the southern kind of side of Bakhmut. And it's coming towards the main supply road. So you've then got two jaws closing behind Bakhmut. By the end of January, it looks very, very much like the Ukrainians are going to lose it. And it seems like they seriously did consider withdrawing several times over those months. But they, they held on, they held on. And then suddenly, the, the, the kind of turning point that took us all back came earlier this month, uh, when there was a sudden Ukrainian counterattack on the, on the flanks, not in Bakhmut itself, 
which panicked the Russians a little bit. But it, it later turned out that was not an attempt to completely reverse the battle. I think what happened there is that they cleared the, those roads that were threatened. That enabled those Ukrainians still holding on to the very last sliver of Bakhmut to effectively evacuate, although the Ukrainians say they've still got some buildings in the city. And that was when Wagner was able to move in to the last little bit of the city and, and declare victory just last week. Um, so that's the, that, that's the basic kind of timeline of the battle. Thanks, Roland. I'll come back to you with one more question, but just very quickly, how when, when you were talking to people in Bakhmut and people on the ground, how, I mean, A, a I'm sort of slightly interested in the process. How did you actually manage to go about that? And how did the kind of messages they were sending to you and what they were telling you, how did that change over the course of the nine and a half months? So the technique that I often do is I use social media to track down people who are there at that current time. And I go from there, ask them if they're willing to talk and then set up phone calls with them. And, well, it definitely changed early on in the beginning. I had a lot of soldiers telling me that they were going to win and that they were fighting with all they had. And as Nazar the soldier said, there were these sort of heroic tales of these big defeats and these fights that soldiers had gone through and come out of the other end spectacularly. But as time did go on, you could definitely tell that the people living there were getting very weary and the soldiers were getting a lot more pessimistic, even though a lot of the time they would try and hide that. But you would get the odd word here and there that obviously showed things were getting a lot worse. Thanks very much, Verity. Roland, in the piece, you you write, the battle began to draw comparisons to Verdun, Germany's attempt to, quote, bleed France white with attrition during the First World War. But in Bakhmut, it was not clear who was bleeding who. I guess that goes to the sort of the, the big question, which is what will be the strategic significance of this battle, of this potentially incredibly pyrrhic Russian victory on the course of the war? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that is to be decided and that's to be decided elsewhere in, in the war because it, although it began as a kind of sense, sensible in a way, it made sense on an operational basis for the Russians to attack there because they had this this plan of encirclement that didn't work out and then it, it did become literally a battle of attrition, basically. And both sides have said this. The Ukrainians have said this, Yevgeny Prigozhin have said that they both said the objective is to bleed the other side and they both claim that they inflicted far more casualties on the opposing army than they suffered. And the truth is we have no idea how many people have died in this battle. Both sides actually take a huge amount of effort in concealing their true casualty figures. One estimate we have basically from the Americans is 100,000 Russian casualties, of which about 20,000 plus killed the remainder wounded. Yevgeny Prigozhin talked about losing 20,000 Wagner fighters. And and the, the, he, he claims that they killed five times that Ukrainians. Ukrainians put in basically the reverse kind of claim they say they killed seven times as many russians as as they lost but 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 the truth is like this is going to show up when when the ukrainian grand counteroffensive occurs how many reserves has either side got how many shells did either side spend that could have been spent elsewhere how 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 sustainable were these losses can can units regenerate have you lost all these experienced guys who could who could train more people coming in these are questions that are only going to be resolved later in the war and I, and i personally think I personally think that this Bakhmut is a battle that I think historians are really going to study for years because of that, because there is no real clear outcome yet about who came out on top in that struggle. 
Thanks very much, Verity and Roland, for coming on and talking about that. And thank you for all of your reporting over the last nine and a half months on such a a, a, a pivotal moment in, in this war. Dom and Francis, do you have any reaction or anything to add to that? Francis, I know you, you've been looking at the historical echoes and, and links between the Battle for Bakhmut and, 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 other, and other big battles in the, 20, in the 20th century. Sure. Well, the Foreign Desk asked me to write a comparison piece between Bakhmut and the Battle of Stalingrad from the Second World War, as it's a comparison that's often made sort of anecdotally, flippantly, but rarely analytically, I would say. And I should emphasise that I'm talking in terms of the nature, the horrific nature of this battle, as opposed to saying that this is a Stalingrad for Russia. It's more about looking at the optics of this and, of course, the incredible violence that we have seen in recent months. I think the piece will be published on Monday, so I won't get ahead of myself and we'll talk about it a bit more next week. But there are some echoes between the two battles, not least in terms of the horrors, as I say, but in other ways too, in terms of some of the geographical features, in terms of its strategic significance on the wider front. There are parallels that can be made or at least explored, although in others it's, of course, an absurd comparison. Firstly, I think the scale. Bakhmut is a fifth of the size of Stalingrad. It had a population of 71,000 in 2021. Stalingrad had over 400,000 inhabitants, I think, in 1942. Then there's the casualty numbers, of course. And whilst in Bakhmut they are absolutely horrific by any standard, they're still greatly reduced with compared to the 2 million dead, wounded or missing in Stalingrad. Secondly, and I really underline this in the piece, this is a very different kind of war. Putin can only dream of the enormous armies that Stalin had at his command, and neither can he legitimately claim this is an existential war for Russia, being fought, of course, as it is in a foreign country, however he may seek to define it. This is fundamentally not a total war between two great powers. The Russian army was barely engaged in Bakhmut by the end, leaving it to Wagner's former criminals. Yet, like Stalingrad, I think Bakhmut may still come to be seen as a turning point for Ukraine, but not for the reasons traditionally associated with that great battle of World War II, and as I say, certainly not for the Russians. But I'll discuss that in more detail next week when the piece is published and when I've had an opportunity to reflect on it a little bit more. As I say, I think the plan is to go out on Monday, so if listeners follow me on Twitter, then I will tweet that and provide perhaps a little bit more context and get into a bit of a discussion with you, because I know that that comparison certainly is one we see a fair bit of, but is not necessarily accurate and that people have a lot of strong opinions about. Thanks, Francis. Just very quickly, what, why, why has this commission come about? Is it because in the English-speaking media, this is a comparison some people, for whatever reason, do make, and we just want to sort of look at it a bit more clearly? Where, where does this come from? Yes, I believe so. I mean, I've read many articles that have made comparisons with Stalingrad in terms of, I think, the particularly that the, it's the street to street hand by hand to hand fighting that particularly has a kind of visceral impact in that when people read about it and they see the images. I think the duration of the battle, too, is is significant. Quite a lot of other battles have lasted a sustained period, but nowhere near as long as this one. And Stalingrad, too, lasted many months. I think as well there's a feeling that this could be a pivotal battle as Roland was saying and of course as I said just a moment ago Stalingrad is often considered a turning point of the Second World War for right or wrong and actually in the piece I perhaps question elements of that analysis but I think it's in some ways a rather simplistic comparison and I think actually that if you're looking at the 
other areas of Bakhmut, because of course this battle is is extended around the fields around around the city, then you'd say that those actually have far more records with World War One and Verdun, as you say, in terms of the nature of that kind of fighting. So as ever, there's more nuance and complexity in this. But I've seen many pieces that refer to Bakhmut as a as a Stalingrad, and I think that the Foreign Desk felt that this was something that was worth pulling apart a little bit and also bringing together some of the images that we've seen which of course do have stark parallels and I think perhaps the most striking thing about this is that with the Battle of Stalingrad and some of the horrific battles we saw in the Second World War the the fundamental thing that was said after that was never again and yet we are seeing horrors taking place on European soil that are comparable with that and in a sense that's the story I think is that there are the fact that we're even able to talk about a city in European soil in the 21st century as being comparable with Stalingrad is just extraordinary and as I said before it shames us all really. Well, thank you very much, Francis, Dom, Roland and Verity. We know we've, we've got an interview for the podcast this evening. So can we just go to our final thoughts now ahead of the weekend? Dom and Francis, what will you be looking at or thinking about in the next few days? Dom Nichols, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, I'm going to be hoping that my interview with the outgoing chief of the air staff lands as intended. So a chief marshal, Sir Mike Wigston, is leaving the RF, leaving the service after 37 year career. And I was lucky enough to interview him for his valedictory interview. He he spoke a lot about um, Russia and Ukraine. He said things like the ideology that's driving Putin. He said you can track all the way back to his period as a KGB operative. He said this is a dictator who's prepared to wage a brutal war in the name of what Russia should be in his mind. But it also demonstrates that this is more than just about one person. There's a whole structure and a hierarchy behind Putin. So even if Putin were to disappear off the stage, there are countless others that could replace him that could be equally brutal and vicious to their own people and to neighbouring states. He spoke, he spoke a lot more about AI, the recent hot water that the RF got into over toxic leadership and discipline issues in the Red Arrows, transitioning the RF to sustainable fuel, but a load more. So that's going to be in tomorrow. Big, big interview with the outgoing chief of the air staff. So, yeah, so keep an eye, keep an eye on that. And he's got many more, many more comments about how air power, air and space power is, uh, is evolving. Thank you very much, uh, Dom. Francis Sternley, would you like the very final thoughts for today? Thanks. Yes. Well, for my final thought today, I want to cover a pretty remarkable story out of Russia, which is that former Russian President Dmitry Mednadev, of course, very familiar to listeners because of his ravings in recent months about Ukraine. He called them, I think, an infection. And then he said, of course, they're all Nazis and also constantly threatening nuclear war as a consequence of what's going on and the apocalypse, all of that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of that in what he's been saying in the last 24 hours during a visit to Vietnam. But what I want to focus on is a little snippet, which I think is quite revealing. And he said, this conflict in Ukraine will last a very long time, most likely decades. Pretty extraordinary statement. As long as there is such a power in place, there will be, say, three years of truce two years of conflict and everything will be repeated. I think this is a remarkable admission if, and it is an if, it's indicative of thinking at an elite level in Moscow. And it's one that, of course, would tally with the fear of many Ukrainians that a negotiated peace with Moscow will not last because Moscow will seek to start this war again or at least intend to. Now, 
if that is their intention, I think it is rather deluded thinking. When this war ends, I think it's safe to assume that Ukraine will receive proper security guarantees from Western powers, whether it's a member of NATO or not. And that, of, in, in addition to the delivery of F-16 aircraft, would make it, I think, impossible for Russia to launch the kind of invasion it did in February last year. But that doesn't necessarily mean that things would be rosy for Ukraine, because a negotiated unsatisfactory peace would end up being lasting potentially because of those security guarantees and thereby the issues that we've reported in the past if Russia retains Crimea for instance may be locked in place for many years and perhaps permanently and that is why Ukraine thinks it has to win this war now and decisively if it doesn't it fears it may be in a kind of limbo for a generation or more and at last, it seems to me that there are still many commentators and diplomats who have not really fully grasped this and continue to say that peace sooner rather than later is the best solution, even if that means re- Russia retaining some territory. It fatally misunderstands the Ukrainian mentality, I think, and one that could prove a real sticking point in the months ahead. We shall see, but... Until that gap between many Western attitudes on the war and Ukraine's mentality is bridged, then I think that we are only going to see a big eruption of a disagreement further down the road. And so I think it's vital that that is corrected now and perhaps the Ukrainian position more greatly understood and why they think that and justifiably why they think that, I think, because... Otherwise, decisions are being made, assumptions are being made, which are incorrect and potentially extremely foolhardy in the long term. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols, uh, quickly, uh, you don't just, of course, appear on this podcast. You write for The Telegraph as well, but you also do a video series for The Telegraph's Video Desk, in which this week, today even, you talk a bit about Dmitry Medvedev. Can you talk a little bit about what your video is about and encourage people to go and watch it? Yeah, thanks, David. So this is the weekly defence in-depth uh, output on the, on our YouTube channel. And today I've just been talking about the about the politics around arms, the, the arms gifting to to Ukraine. And I just make the point that that Putin's actually been fairly clever. He's never actually said to the West, "If you send that, I'm going to do this." He's never boxed himself in like that. He saw the the trouble Obama got into over red lines in Syria, and so he's never said anything as definite as that, given himself enough political wiggle room. But he, he relies on people like Medvedev to make that case for him. So you get Medvedev, who I say is a, a kind of nuclear obsessed Wreck-It Ralph, who keeps threatening to atomize anyone who so much as looks at Russia in a funny way. So he's sent out as, as, a, as a sort of modern day or post-Soviet strange love stand-in to go and make all these points so that we all get, get very energised. But uh, but Putin very clearly and very obviously just keeps himself one step removed. But anyway, go and have a look at the Telegraph's YouTube channel and you'll see the uh, you'll see the Defence in Depth series. I think we've done about eight or eight or nine of them at the moment. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Dom, I, I, I've had a complete mind blank. Have you done your final thought? I did my final thought months ago. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Roland, Verity, Dom and Francis. Dr. Jay Biglin is an expert on memory and identity construction in Russia, and particularly how this is forged by its media and propaganda. Her new book, Russia's War, analyses Russia's parallel military and political universe, revealing the sometimes monstrous, sometimes misconstrued attitudes behind Russian backing for the invasion of Ukraine. 
Frances Dernley spoke to her again earlier this week to discuss, among other things, the book's central arguments and to reflect on Dr McGlynn's recent trip to Ukraine. Here's their conversation. Jade, wonderful to have you back on the podcast. I understand you've recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, your first time since the invasion last year. What did you find? What were your reflections from that experience? My main reflection, well, first of all, was how lovely it was to be back because Kyiv's always been my favourite city. So it was just lovely um, to see the Satra Volodymyr, to see the mighty Dnipr, uh, Dnipr River, and it was great. The second takeaway was how easy it was to forget that it wasn't, say, 2018, because, of course, you had men in uniform, soldiers then, not in the same sort of quantity, of course. But it was kind of easy, and then you'd just be walking along and you'd see this sort of the yizhi, the, the hedgehogs, the tank hedgehogs, like oh no it's not it's not 2018 and almost it would wash over you the horror of of what was happening I think as as it inevitably was going to be it was obviously an, an emotional experience as well but in terms of sort of focusing less on my personal reflections and more on policy I came back I mean I I kind of knew this anyway because obviously I have a lot of friends um in Ukraine but there's absolutely no way they will stop fighting. And it's not because they're triumphalist, you know, they're ready to to go through hell. It's just, I think this is just about survival in the same way that, that you or I would fight to survive if, if somebody was, was trying to kill us. And where exactly did you travel in Ukraine? So we only went to Kiev. We took the train from Shermyshaw and then it was sort of, as well, that was strange because I'd taken the train quite a few times from Poland into Ukraine, but normally it goes sort of north, close to the Belarusian border. And for very obvious reasons, it didn't do that this time. And so I sort of woke up and was like, oh no, why are we in Venezia? <laughs> I took the wrong train. I'm going to Romania or something, but it was fine. So we only went to Kiev, although I'm, I'm traveling back soon and I hope to be able to, to travel to, to other places. But of course, sort of both security permitting and also my husband <laughs> permitting. <laughs> And we were talking on Twitter a few days ago about some very interesting memorials that you saw when you were in Ukraine. Even whilst the war is going on, history is being recorded. And of course, that's a huge focus of yours is the recording of memory. I'm just interested in your reflections on, on that side of things. Yes. So they've reconstructed, if we talk about, you know, the, the sort of infamous images of Voxana Street, um, you know, completely destroyed with the Russian tanks in Bucha, which is just north of Kiev. And we visited there. And it's a lot of it is greatly reconstructed, but there's a sort of an information board almost. Maybe that's underselling it, like a little sort of somewhere between an information board and a memorial with a picture of what it looked like before during the Russian occupation. And I mean, admittedly, there are still broken buildings and on the way there as well, you pass by and there are a few of these um, sort of car graveyards that have been left and they're the, the family cars that tried to flee. And I think that's quite a disturbing experience because you see sometimes you, you see children's items there. And you see signs saying deity, like children on the cars. And then you see that they've been shelled, like, or they've been shot, like, you know, a hundred plus times. And of course, as well, the, the graveyards, um, which you also see on, on the train, sort of what appear to be fresh graveyards. So I think when you walk around Kiev, you see that there are a lot of signs about mental health. And I think there's this remarkable attempt to be trying to recognise the scale, of course, of the trauma that is going on and an attempt to try to process it in such a way. And you feel like people 
if I have conversations with people in Russia, very sort of an unwillingness, of course, to talk about even the losses at their own side. And I don't mean from a sort of trying to get military information, but just in terms of like the pain of it. Whereas in Ukraine, of course, it's painful to talk about loss, but there is this sense that there is some effort to process. And I think that's because unlike in, in Russia, Ukraine has a vision of a future that it is fighting for and that it's building towards. And that's why I think when anybody ever asks me, do you feel optimistic? I always say, well, for whom? For Ukraine? Yeah, I do. Despite the fact I think there's much, much more misery and pain to come. For Russia, no, I, I don't feel anything but depressed. Well, that's a good place to come to your latest book. The last time we spoke, I think it was a few weeks away from publication. Perhaps you can just remind listeners, first of all, about the central thesis of that book. The central thesis of the book is that this isn't just Putin's war. This is Russia's war. This is a war that's been going on since 2014. And there's not a point about collective responsibility. It's I'm not priest. It's not a sort of judgmental point. It's just a point of this is what the research shows us, is that there is considerable approval or willingness to go along with the war. And I think that there's often a focus, understandably, because they're sort of more interesting, I guess, um, on the two binaries, you know, the, the small percentage that are very strongly opposed and the slightly larger but still unrepresentative uh, percentage that are really genocidal sort of maniacs, you know, in, in active support of the war. And I want to focus on the groups in between and Yes, what the propaganda shows, what is Russia's war, what war are they watching, or what special military operation are they watching, but also why the propaganda resonates, because in a 21st century environment, you can't control the media environment, you know, people, you can't just brainwash people. Propaganda, yes, it needs the platform, and we know that it has that in Russia, but it also needs that resonance, it needs to fit with how people understand themselves, their lives, the world, and how people make meaning is about making meaning and, and why does that meaning appeal? And it's had glowing reviews, it has to be said. But I imagine that given the nature of your argument, that it's not without controversy. I'm interested in your reflections and perhaps some of the questions you've had from readers and from other academics about the book since its publication. It's funny, it hasn't been controversial Although it's not an academic book, it, of course, draws on a lot of academic research, but it's written for a wider audience. And so I actually haven't really had any pushback from academics. Well, you know, not from academics who work in this field, I suppose, like who, who have the relevant expertise. There may be a maths academic out there who's fuming. But I think ultimately a lot of the sort of points around Putin's war, Russia's war. I mean, clearly it's not Putin's war. I mean, if, if we just have sort of common sense, I mean, clearly Putin was the catalyst and he is legally responsible. But again, I'm not really talking about responsibility. I'm just trying to think about, we need to understand why people are willing to go along with this war, why people approve of it or acquiesce to it, because it's important for policy. All of the reviews you're right have been glowing except for one, which was the first review that came out. And it was an odd review, but it essentially accused me of sort of writing off or demonising an entire people, which I found odd because my whole point is to not do that, you know, it's to try to understand and put oneself in, one's, in the other's shoes. But fine, I sort of expected that. But also that I had missed the fact that actually it wasn't ethnic Russians doing some of these crimes, but actually from minority republics, and I'll leave listeners to interpret what on earth that point could be getting at and then thirdly it ended with the comment that Russians are just as much victims of Putin and the Kremlin as Ukrainians which I think is such an outrageous statement that without in any way wanting to dismiss from the genuine 
suffering and physical threats and, and violence inflicted upon Russian dissidents, it, it, it clearly cannot be compared. And so I guess that made it easier to not take it seriously. But it did make me feel very sad because I think it comes on and it sort of anticipates a question that, that perhaps we'll come on to, which is that one of still the Russocentrism, you know, this focus on Russian suffering over Ukrainian suffering. And that's not to say that we shouldn't focus on Russian suffering. We should. We should. That's It's not. But it's the need to equate and somehow place it over Ukrainian suffering that I find very hard to understand. Well, let's unpack that a little bit further, because it's certainly true that quite often when we talk about the war, it's always what's happening in Russia, as opposed to perhaps what is happening in Ukraine. And it's always... Not, we obviously don't do this on the podcast, but it's quite common to read pieces that are, you know, Russia is failing due to its own fatal flaws or the way it's conducting its military affairs, as opposed to being because of Ukrainian successes. And so I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that. I actually also just want to say, and I'm not just saying because I'm on here because I'm just I'm genuinely not that polite to do that, but... Um, you do give a lot of voice to Ukrainians on this podcast, and I think it's really wonderful that you do that because it definitely doesn't fall into the trap that I think sometimes you know media almost reflexively does because we have focused on Russia and also because maybe, dare I say it, perhaps it's easier for a country like Britain to kind of empathise, not to sympathise, clearly the sympathy is with Ukraine, but to empathise, put itself in the sort of Russian shoes for obvious historical reasons that will leave unsaid. And that's not a comparison or a relativization at all. It's just in terms of sort of thinking about yourself as a sort of major power. In terms of why it is, I think there's a lot that could be said and it's different for, for different people. I think it doesn't help that we have a lot of people who are ultimately just Russianists who talk about Ukraine without any real knowledge of Ukraine and the many ways that it's different. I mean, I'm a Russianist and I, I sometimes talk about Ukraine. I tend to focus on Russia, but I have also you know, studied Ukrainian and spent a lot of time there, done research there. So there's a difference. The other thing I think is that we just, I mean, this is one of the ways that the invasion failed so spectacularly, right, is they didn't account for Ukrainian agency. And sometimes it's so odd, you know, to be in conversations of policymakers or whoever or informed people and sort of ask all these questions. But ultimately, it's not going to be Russian protests unless there was a sort of Russian revolution, which I, I find implausible, to be honest, for many reasons. It's not going to be Russian protests that stop this war. It's, it's going to be Ukraine getting to a point where there is some sort of victory, what that victory looks like. Of course, we can debate for hours and whatnot, but there's going to be some element where Russia is forced to stop and then is unable through deterrence to act further on its sort of imperial designs on Ukraine. That's how the war stops. And the fact that the focus is still very much on, OK, Russia, this, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are many internal issues such as corruption and hubris and refusal to recognise Ukraine as Ukrainian agency that have definitely impacted for the worse Russia's ability to perform militarily. But it's Ukrainians that are winning. It's not just Russia that's kind of losing to its own self. And perhaps the most obvious articulation of that was just how many people didn't believe it would be possible for Ukraine to resist three days against the Russians, let alone a year and however many months in. I mean, it's been quite extraordinary seeing how people have suddenly woken up to the reality of what Ukraine is capable of, the understanding of its people, its culture. I mean, it's been revelatory. And I think there'll be many, many people around the world who listen to us and read your book and read books around Ukraine and think, my goodness, you know, it sort of really opens your eyes to a whole world that really was dismissed, misunderstood in some of the ways that you're talking about. Just staying on this theme of 
misinterpretations or misunderstandings amongst experts and perhaps amongst the commentariat of journalists is around these conflicts between, say, the Russian opposition, the Ukrainian and Western policymaker positions on Russia and how they look at the issue of what needs to happen in Russia and how for Ukrainians, there's a frustration, there's an anger about some of the more liberal elements of the Russian elite who uh, have perhaps a slightly different outlook. They don't want to see the disintegration of Russia, whilst, of course, Ukraine would welcome that. Just interested in your analysis of those contradictions and whether they are reconcilable by the end of this war. I think that's the key question. And I think it's still a question I'm sort of working through myself, because obviously, um, it's a very important one. I think at the moment, the two issues are irreconcilable in terms of if we're talking about the Ukrainian and the Russian opposition approach or vision of, of what should come next. But I actually think that if we recognise the fact that they're irreconcilable, then that will be helpful for trying to find a way where there is overlap and therefore where kind of we can support Ukrainians in this and then we can support, let's say, Russian opposition or whatever in, in this idea. Because, for example, it seems to me that it's very important to keep a different vision of Russia alive. And that's something that, say, for example, Russian opposition media are doing. And I think, you know, in particular in the Netherlands, there, there's a lot of support going on to help that. But I think we also have to understand that for that, it comes back to that point I was making earlier about resonance, that some of the messages that are going to have to be given to make sure that it is resonant and that it fits and it makes sense to people in Russia are going to be messages that Ukrainians are not going to like sometimes um, and maybe that I'm not going to like or you're not going to like or whatever. And I think we can accept that provided, I mean, admittedly, of course, I don't know if Ukrainians can accept it, but it seems to me that that's acceptable, provided that we're not then saying that this is the media, if we support this media, that's going to bring an end to the war. I think we need to separate it. I think the importance of keeping a vision of Russia alive, a different vision of Russia and keeping sort of networks alive, that's one thing. And I think winning the war is a different thing, because I don't think Russian civil society is going to stop the war. And ultimately, like, I mean, you know, and, and I would also say as well that there is still civil society within Russia, but it does have LGBTQ flags. It's actually, you know, there are people that are against the war who are organising. I mean, some of them maybe do have LGBTQ flags because you also have civil society that's sort of blowing up railroads, but you have others who are civil society who have spoken out against the war, such as Narodna Tietchka, like the people's sort of pharmacy, and other different groups like Society Future, it's called Obshustva Budusha, and they have spoken out against the war, but then they raise funds to get medicine, to Russian soldiers, to bring blankets to Mariupol or heaters to Mariupol and to get sort of non-lethal equipment to Russian soldiers. And I think that it's worth us thinking about whether or not they might, people might be more inclined towards those people if we get to a point in Russia where Russians say, oh no, actually this was Putin's war and, and we didn't want anything to do with it. I would imagine that their sympathies would lie more with that group, you know whoever I, I may wish that he's lie with. It's not my job as an analyst to say what I want to happen. It's my job to say what I think will happen. And that's my concern, especially because these groups seem to be growing in importance and certainly in, in involvement. And of course, the importance of having these kind of grassroots movements and sort of connections and horizontal ties between people is in itself quite a political act. So I, I suppose if they get that much bigger, maybe maybe someone will start to intervene within Russia. But I think it's overlooked for the time being, the growth of these sorts of supporting the war, but anti-war movements or supporting the troops, not the war. 
That's very interesting. And I haven't heard much analysis of that. So we'll have to return perhaps to that another time. Staying on the question of Russian civil society, Dom asked me a question the other day about where we should be looking for an impact of not so much sanctions, but of economic fragility in Russia in a way that will actually have potentially some kind of tangible impact on the way the Russian population views the war. And I thought it was an interesting question. So I sort of put it to you is where should we look in the long term? It doesn't have to be in a year or two. I mean, thinking in the long, long term, if Russia is sort of more isolated, its economy is impacted by this war in a major way. Where should we look first to signs that it's starting to really have a major impact that it doesn't seem to have had in perhaps the way that we thought it might when the war started? Well, I'd separate two things here. So obviously sectoral sanctions, which are having you know quite a strong impact and can continue to do so on reducing Russia's sort of like industrial heft and, and whatnot. In terms of personal sanctions and sort of, I suppose, sanctions that sometimes aren't applied by governments, but are applied kind of by companies. And I have a point that actually linked to this, but let me answer your question first. I mean, they already had an effect in a lot of ways, but often that effect has been of bringing Russians together. And we saw a similar thing actually happen in Serbia with sanctions or the, the rump Yugoslavia as it was then, where, you know, Milosevic was incredibly unpopular. And then especially the bombings almost rallied people behind an idea of Serbia, not necessarily behind Milosevic. I think we need to be prepared for that. That said, some of the personal sanctions are ridiculously popular, especially like the Putin's wallet ones or the ones that go after Kabayova, uh, his mistress or um, rich people. Because, you know, Russians, obviously, I mean, that's why one of the reasons Navalny was popular. Russians don't like the corruption. They're aware of it. And, you know, they, they like to see the elite get their comeuppance. The only other thing I would say, though, is if we look through sort of Levada polls over the last sort of 20 years or even further back, 30 years, we can see that whenever the economy isn't doing very well, the number of people who would prefer to return to a Soviet style economy with a more sort of command approach increases. So it won't necessarily mean if people see what they have now as a sort of market economy, and there are many things about Russia that are very neoliberal, though you certainly wouldn't call it sort of a capitalist dream um, in terms of, for many, many other reasons, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. And this, I think that it will probably, I mean, well, just if we look at what the data shows us, it would suggest that economic worsening will encourage more of a turn towards those types of, of attitudes. It won't necessarily be like, OK, well, we really want to, you know, have a more Western style market economy. You never know, but that's not what the data is showing. But just as a really quick final point, because it's a project that's happening and I suppose I'm kind of on the, the sidelines of, but there are obviously a number of Western products or products that are still sold, British products and products that are still sold in Britain that are either still selling in Russia or have actually gone back. And so I think that there's going to be a campaign starting soon, not to stop people. People can buy what they want and that's up to them. I, I'm not, I don't think that people should be shamed, but I do think that people should be informed because I think a lot of British people would choose to buy another product if they knew that this one was paying taxes or in some way contributing to the Russian war effort. And so I think there's going to be a campaign starting soon and I'll let you know um, about it to introduce stickers that just explain that. And, and like I say, it's not people can and should buy what they want but it's just about making sure that people are aware because I certainly as myself as somebody who follows this very closely I'm not always aware of the different products that sell so I think it'd be like little, little stickers just to say we sell in Russia and then people can make up their own minds if they would prefer to use a different product. Well we can certainly return to that when we next have you on because I think it's a very interesting campaign and it's one obviously that needs to be internationally coordinated too it's not just British companies that we've heard instances of it happening. No it's definitely not. On the Russian economy question, 
you were saying, you know, that there's no reason necessarily to think, unfortunately, that the sanctions in the long term will lead people to want a more Western style economy. Do you think, though, that it could lead people to say, well, actually, we want the war to end, that we've had enough of this? It's impacting all of us in a way that we just, it's been going on for years with no tangible impact in the way that we were promised end it now. Can you foresee that? Or do you think actually that in the same way people turn to a more command structure in economics, that they also become more loyal to Putin? No, I think that there's definitely a chance for that. And I do think that the situation among the people who I suppose I've been speaking to since 2014, who I use as sort of almost, I suppose, like bellwethers of, of where different attitudes are, there has been a shift. I think that Forgive me because I can't remember the the polling organization, but there was a recent poll that showed, you know, that most Russians would prefer to be spending money on domestic issues rather than military or kind of foreign policy issues. And it was by quite a marked margin. And this was recent. So that tells us something as well. I think probably tells us sometimes more the very frightening, probably to many Russians, question of do you support special military operation? So I definitely think, and I I think, again, it comes back to the point I make in my book that it's better to talk about acquiescence for a lot of Russians to the war rather than support. Because I think if the war ended, yeah, you'd have some people who would be wanting, you know, including among the elites who would be wanting to fight it. But you'd have an awful lot of people who would probably just be like, phew, because it's not bringing anything good, is it? You know, this is not a militarised kind of Nazi-style society. It's quite a demobilised one, as we saw with the mobilisation process in September, and that's why, obviously, they're dragging their feet about mobilising again. So I do think that it will include that. But the problem is a different one. The problem is Putin has a sort of plebiscitary popular approval for what he does, but he doesn't necessarily need it. Very interesting. So you always inject so much nuance into all of these really complicated questions, which is why it's fantastic to have you on. You've obviously been you know, very well connected with scholars exploring Russia for a long, long time. And I just wonder how much the field has changed since the invasion. Was there a collective sort of, we told you so, to those who perhaps have not been following Russia as closely about the dangers of this? Or do you think more people were shocked and are now sort of reassessing their life's work? There definitely wasn't the I told you so. I just talk about sort of mainly British and to a slight extent American. Because definitely not feeling if I told you so. I think people were shocked. I think for me, if I'm honest with you, because I have another book that's out soon and it's almost like the prequel to Russia's War and reading it. And I remember at the time being like, but where does all this lead? And I was like, no, it can't lead there. Like, I didn't want to follow the logic through. I didn't want to sort of finish the sentence because I was like, it, it can't lead there. Like, it just can't for so many reasons. And then obviously on 24 February, I was like, okay, it leads here. And I think in a way that's why I had to kind of write Russia's War because it was almost like finishing Memory Makers. So I think there's been that element of people not wanting to see what was there because it didn't make sense, you know, like in many ways. And obviously there was a lot of flawed intelligence in the invasions. Look, it's a tricky one, but I don't have the patience to be that diplomatic. So I think that there are still a lot of problems in the Russia studies field. And I think that just renaming it Slavonic studies or Slavic studies or, you know, area studies or whatever you want to call it, I don't think that's going to mask it. I don't think it's going to mask the Russian centrism. And I think it's going to take a long time. And I definitely think, you know, most people are very, very good actors who really want to deal with this. And I think it should be all debated and things. You know, I'm really not a fan of cancel culture or anything like this. I think it's important to debate it. But at the same point, there does need to be a reflection on the fact that if certain people who are very pro-Russian or and in the sense of pro-Russian state, not in the sense of pro-Russian people, and they're increasingly very different things in terms of the sentiment, sorry, then should they be the people who teach 
undergraduate students, Russian history or Russian culture? And if they are, okay, but how is their view being balanced? And also importantly, how is this a space that's constructive for Ukrainians? Because we're not talking about, forgive me, but I am in America. We're not talking about somebody who needs like a guinea pig or whatever they're called, you know, to make themselves feel better. You know, those kind of emotional safety animals. We're talking about people who are undergoing what I view and many scholars of, of genocide would view as a genocidal war. This isn't the same as somebody needing a safe space because they didn't like a film. And we need to make that distinction because it's a very important one. And Ukrainians... I guess to come back to the other question we're talking about, Ukrainians must be our priority. Well, Jade, thank you very, very much. And we look forward to having you on again very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast you can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter spaces follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it to our listeners on YouTube Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.